1995 was the year that solidified the sofa work ethic. We would meet three or four nights a week in our basement local, two rehearsal rooms with a little bathroom and kitchen area that served as our lounge, the front door rebuilt after the robbery to withstand Mongol hordes. With my girlfriend studying in Ontario, I could afford to be so generous with my time. My hours with the band comprised the greater part of my social life. Neither Ian nor Brad were in serious relationships at the time, though drummer Keith had married the summer before and his heavy schedule would prove a challenge at home. Come February of 95, only four months out from launching the debut album, we were ready to record again. But Test Tone had not been selling and we were no longer playing many of its songs. We certainly had little money and would not be looking to friends for that kind of help again, but we also wanted a piece of music we could send out that reflected what we were doing now to help us book gigs in and out of Montreal. We wanted something we could stand behind and say, you might not like it, but that's us. Sunday, February 5th, saw a classic Montreal blizzard, and we convened on the loft apartment of a friend of the band, Paul Drouet, he was a drummer with the band Gilgamesh and offered to record us, live to two-track, in his loft. The cons to this scenario were how fast we would have to move. We had a ten-hour block to record as much as we could, starting the setup at 10 a.m. There would be no overdubs. Ian and Keith and I were in the main room and Brad was sequestered in the bathroom, uh, the isolation booth, with headphones on, singing in the dark without aid of any visual cues from us. With only two tracks to record onto, one for vocals and the other for the band, the most important use of time was in setting the levels as near to perfect as one could at the start. The pros to doing it this way, it was immediate gratification. We could play a take, and if the performance was good, we'd listen to it. If it sounded right to everyone, we'd move on. And the tape bears this out. We were a very well-rehearsed band, excited by the new material. The flubs were few. The sound was continuing to evolve in a darker direction, veering on one end to what Brad called the Criers, the Nick Cavian weeping songs we all loved, to the heavier galloping numbers on the other. 
Though he was still capable of a great performance like on Sometimes, Brad was slowly getting away from singing, in quotation marks, and developing into what might be reclassified as a vocal artist, taking on something more of a character who would narrate the after-hours voyage on which the listener was invited. The band was serving him some odd textures and time signatures, and he was up for the challenge. This may be my favorite era of Sofa on a purely sonic level, and I owe that to a few things. Brad was balancing between hitting the notes and finding a subterranean growl, and experimenting in earnest with a dictaphone, a little handheld tape recorder, to add layers of sound at the mic. Keith and I had found a way to play off each other that we never discussed, but it was as satisfying a musical relationship as I've ever known. And at that time, Ian started playing with two guitar amps, a big Marshall and a smaller Fender reverb amp. He was able to create squalls of sound that may have been old news to fans of Hendrix, but it was new to Sofa. It added an epic, cinematic quality to a music that was always self-consciously striving to dive deeper into the human condition. There was little in this that would suggest R&B or funk, but I would maintain it was developing into another kind of soul music. Melancholy and distress in varying balances permeated every song. Ian would eventually tag Sofa as uneasy listening, and we maintained that throughout.
The seven-song album would be known as Town Unsafe, and our test tone experience had taught us that releasing a CD might not be the holy grail after all. We had enough cassette copies made to sell a few at shows and send out to get us gigs and reviews, but there were little of either. We still managed to play up and down St. Laurent, Montreal, and started to look to Ottawa two hours away. The rehearsal schedule was maintained, and we kept writing, always wanting to debut new songs at every show. With a backlog of material, we went back to Paul's Loft over the St. Jean-Baptiste weekend, the first time we would record in scorching weather and repeat the town unsafe process. Put out in September of 95 as another cassette-only release, Record acted as a volume two to Town Unsafe. Recorded in the same manner, just four months apart, take them together as a snapshot of where the band was that year, playing and writing with impressive confidence and starting to gain a reputation as a good live band, but struggling to play to anyone beyond our circle of friends. We vacillated between self-deprecation and a surprisingly healthy collective ego. We were as prone as anyone, especially when holed up in our little basement room night after night, to speak ill of the Pharisees who wouldn't give us the time of day. Promoters who wouldn't let us open for touring acts coming through town and let us play for wider audiences. Other bands on the scene, at least the ones whose music we didn't really like, or who we felt were making the headway eluding us record companies and radio stations and publications who wouldn't acknowledge us. Well, this is all part of being in the arts, as it turns out. 
It was both comforting to be in the struggle with the same troops over and over again, and dangerous. We fittingly enough developed a bit of a bunker mentality in that basement, playing our dark music for one another, striving for something important. But not always did we play with joy. At least, when we had a show coming up, we would have something to work toward, a focus, and we would craft a set list of half a dozen songs if we were opening, or twice that if we were headlining, and we would polish those numbers until they shone like onyx. We didn't improvise, ever. I respect musicians who can, but I was never skilled enough to do that well, and I preferred, I think we all did in that context, to use our time writing and rewriting the songs until we had them as we wanted them to sound. And once that was agreed upon, that was usually it. The song was done. A list of the places we played in 1995 alone reads like a tally of places lost to history. One or two still exist. Purple Haze, Woodstock, Lazard, Boomerang, Cafe Campus, and Foof. Looking back through the clippings now, one sees, well, that there were clippings. We were getting little bits of press for almost every show we played, even the ones where admission was $3 or $5 at the door. Sometimes a notice would be in French, usually in English. In hindsight, we might not have been the pariahs we felt we were. And it was in 95 that we made a new friend of the band in a sardonic young man from the East Coast. Don Wilkie became a staunch champion of Sofa and more than anyone would begin to steer the band to an actual direction at last. Pretty much. 
Episode 67, Sew Around. Written and read by Scott Clarkson. Music by Sofa and Garner Firebird. Mm-hmm.